Hi, Helen Hong. Hi, J. Keith Van Stratton. It is BOCO time. We've got a bonus content episode right now in honor of our beloved Maximum Fun members. That's right. Every year, you wonderful and special listeners contribute to the show to keep us going and prove how much you appreciate what we do. And now it's our turn to show our appreciation to you. You see, every episode we have has brilliant and funny people who we're always excited to have on our show, but sometimes we just don't have time to include include all the stories that they tell us. That's where this episode comes in. We're going to share some of our favorite moments from the cutting room floor with you kind and generous listeners. And if you want to listen to the complete episodes, you can find them all at gofactorpod.com or wherever you get podcasts. Let's get started with a bit from one of our favorite recent experts from the Star Wars saga. It is C-3PO actor Anthony Daniels. Oh, man, we love talking with him, and boy, can he talk. And I mean that in the most beautiful, loving, generous way. Uh, I was fangirling so hard the entire time because he definitely sounds like C-3PO. I mean, it's kind of amazing. And yet, when he does the C-3PO voice, you realize, wait, that's not just Anthony Daniels' voice. Like, he actually, it really is a character that he's playing. Well, he was on episode 77 with guests Yardley Smith and Ryan Khalil. Here is Anthony Daniels telling us about what it's been like to play the famous droid for over four decades. People say, how can you stick with 3PO for 47 years, I think? I love yeah. him. I think he's great. I think he's terrific. And uh, I'm very proud to kind of know him pretty well. I feel the same. Yeah. And with the recordings, of course, I've had to come in and out of England and each time go in a 14 days quarantine, mm. at the end of which I have gone to a sound studio where there are like 12 pieces of glass yeah. between me and <laughs> anybody else in the building. Right. And I have to tell you, I got a little fractious the other day because I was due to uh, record... And suddenly Disney come in and say, ah, by email saying, this studio, this new studio has not been COVID certified. (gasps) And so we had to, I mean, you can go a little far. Do you want, you know what I mean? You press a doorbell, they go, they say, a voice says, go downstairs. (laughs) And first door on the right. And then you're in this booth. And as I said, there's this glass screen between you and the next human being. And everything is smelling of disinfectant anyway. And there's you and a mic. Well, I'm not, I'm touch wood. I haven't got the COVID. But like you, I'm so grateful that 3 Pierre's voice has carried me through the years. <laughs> my. Sorry, sorry. No, no, please don't apologize. But, but Yardley, it is, it is great to see such a, a phenomenal, uh, actor like yourself in in on my screen here looking gorgeous you know one of the problems with zoom frankly <laughs> as opposed to a telephone call yes we have to get dressed and we have to look nice right and uh it's less of a challenge for you <laughs> because remember no remember that i've spent all these years hidden hidden behind a mask <laughs> 3po forever young yep um harrison ford getting older Mark Hamill getting older dear Carrie Fisher getting older not 3PO Mm. no 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 no. he stayed just as young as ever Uh, however on the inside it's not like that at all. <laughs> Speaking of inside, I want to uh, ask you a little bit about your book. Your book is called I Am C-3PO. Ah. It's now available in paperback, and uh, it's been published in many languages. Um, I have to ask you, because I, I, I happened to notice this the other day when we were speaking with you. Uh, what is it called in Spanish? I don't have the, the Espanol, so I think it's called Soy 
C3PO. Yes, I am C3PO. And then it says La Historia desde dentro, which I think sounds wonderful. It really does. Yes. In French, of course, it is called Les Memoirs ne se fassent pas. Ah. I don't know why they translate things, but they do. And I have to say, I can read it in French a bit. It is so elegant. It makes me sound like, wow, almost like a poet. But how amazed and proud am I to... Because they said to me some, what, a couple of years ago, I think, I lose track. You know, would I write a book? So I did, just for the heck of it. And I, I wrote it uh, on trains, uh, Eurostar, all that kind of thing, planes, endlessly to and from America and other places. Um, and then in the attic of our new home without central heating over winter. I cannot tell you. Just the fit. I look like a, a, a footballer, a British footballer with those little finger mitt gloves where just the fingers are poking <laughs> yes. out in case you're going to catch the ball. Um, and wearing blankets and hats, scarves and all that kind of thing. But also uh, on the set of The Rise of Skywalker because the book was going to come out um, about two months, I think, before the film. So being careful not to give any spoilers mm-hmm. because... We don't like spoilers. Yes. No. Can everybody say, we don't like spoilers? We right. don't like okay. spoilers. Oh, that was so good. Yeah. <laughs> I think you could use that as your next audition. Thanks. <laughs> we don't like spoilers. Um, and then, uh, so one day I was on the set and they said, we're terribly sorry. We, um, we sit here in your tent next to where we're shooting uh, because we may need your ankles in a, in a shot. <laughs> three years at drama school and they're worried about whether they're going to need 3 PO's ankles in a shot so with this great. ball drawing. And at the end of the day, they were terribly sorry. Uh, we didn't need your ankles. <laughs> but... I said, no, no, it's fine. And the reason it was fine is I wrote, a, you know, I filled in lots of chapters whilst I was sitting there listening to what was going on. Because, wow. you know, on a, on a film set, there's a bunch of uh, waiting time. Mostly yeah. waiting. So I, yeah. I was mostly, mostly waiting. So to suddenly have this book come out, first of all, in hardback in English, and, and people kind of liked it. And so uh, then the French and Spanish and I think Korean is coming. <gasps> Japanese has already happened. And now in paperback, I feel kind of, I don't know, official, really. You've arrived. And here's the thing. Uh, listening to Ryan, he said he's got a piece of the uh, the, the desktop. Mm-hmm. Is that right, Ryan? Yep. Yes, sir. Well, I'll show you mine if you will show me. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I'm embarrassed. I, so all my, all my memorabilia is in storage. We're, we're doing some work on our home which uh, the pandemics led us to uh, have some free time to do. So we're in a rental now. Um, so I don't have, I don't have my memorabilia here or my book, which I've read, but I would love to see what you have. Well, I don't, I, I'm the same with you somewhere in, in boxes here, but I'm holding it up to camera now. You can see that I have, I don't know, half a dozen, I don't know, 10 pieces of stuff. Uh, and those are genuine. And I talk about in the book, how way back it was episode six um i found them at the back yard of um the back lot of uh, elstree studios with this kind of stinky bonfire and i thought wait a minute i recognize some of this stuff they were the sheets gray uh sort of um stuff cladding and it was the cladding of the millennium falcon and then i noticed other bits 
And, and there were these plastic tubes and cables and everything. And you rescued them from the fire? I rescued them because they said, I said, what are you doing burning this thing? They said, well, we can't, there's nowhere to store it. <gasps> the the uh, mechanics of the inside, the, the skeletal structure, which was scaffolding, had gone back to be recycled, melted down. But they were burning the plywood and the plastic and stuff. Uh, uh, plastic anymore. And I, I actually genuinely felt, oh, this is so wrong. <laughs> because by then, I had known this spaceship I'd known this for many, many years, and it was an iconic character, just as much as any of the of the physical characters, whether they were creatures or robots mm -hmm. or, or human um, uh, heroes or whatever. And so, yeah, and researching for the book, uh, you know, I was in my attic finding all sorts of bits of junk and stuff. So I was delighted, Ryan, to hear that you and I, well, we're possibly not the only ones. Yes. Possibly people could phone in. So here's a caveat. Here's a little warning. Yes. One of the chapters in my book, did I mention I'd written a book? Yes, I believe you mentioned that <laughs> um, several times, yes. So I, it's called so I, IMC, IMC 3 so Human Cyborg Relation, or, yes, <laughs> what, what was that again? Helen? Soy, soy. Soy, so, soy C-3PO. And, and C-3PO, uh, La Historia Desde Dentro, yes. yes. <laughs> Uh, I, I could say it in Japanese. No, I couldn't say it in Japanese, but there we are. Ah, watashi wa T-3PO for this. The embarrassing thing is, of course, that 3PO is, as I think Ryan, you said, didn't you? Fluent in over six million forms of communication. <laughs> you did say that, Ryan, I didn't did, you? Because yes. you remember the oil bath, don't you? <laughs> Do you remember the oil bath? Yes. Of course. Yeah. That was a very weird scene because... Uh, I do talk about it in the book, and I think I mentioned I'd written the book, um, because there was a genuine bath of vegetable oil no! with green colouring. No! Yes! Uh, yes, and it was warm. They'd warmed it a bit. Because, Wait, they lowered uh, you it, into it an a... actual vat of oil? Yeah. <laughs> think of me... Think of me like in a fish shop uh, before they boost up the heat, um, you know, and put it with fries. <laughs> Uh, and I was on a little, uh, how would you say, elevator, and I really had to trust these guys. <laughs> I wanted to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, um, it's good that it was warm but not hot. We might have had, we might have exactly, had CTPO tempura. Yeah. <laughs> it was a very interesting sensation as the oil crept up on the inside. But um, when you, the only time you realize I've been in oil is when I rise up, like Venus there, and. I extend my arm, or, or no, I I'm kind of doing that, I'm being faintly disgusted because I remember feeling so appalling because I was dripping with oil and it was pouring out of this costume around me. How Mark Hamill managed to keep a straight face, I don't know. But he did. And uh, it is one of my, it's actually one of my favorite scenes, but you don't, it's very, very subtle. I haven't ever taken an oil bath since. <laughs> Oh, it ruined you for oil bath. Yeah. Oh, once you've once you had that experience. And the fun thing is, if you notice, it looks very hot. Watch this movie again, because it kind of is my favorite. We'll get it onto the Empire Strikes Back shortly. If you look carefully, there's steam coming out of the bath, yes? That implies the oil is very hot. Yes. Wrong. So, factoid, fact for your program, um... The steam came from two electric kettles plugged in behind me. Ah, I love that. And I love Very that British. kind of filmmaker. Yes. You could do that at home, that kind of, be careful. Um, 
those kind of effects were so natural then. Wow. Now, you know, there's a lot of computer stuff. Yes. Huh. Anyway, talking too much. From Star Wars to Star Trek, let's hear from our chat with Nana Visitor, who Trekkies will know as Kira Nerys from Deep Space Nine. Now, normally our show is pretty lighthearted, but Nana shared an intensely personal story, and we just didn't think it fit in with the vibe of the rest of that episode. But we do feel it's important to honor her experience and vulnerability, so we're including it here. This segment does involve discussion of PTSD and sexual assault, so if that is too upsetting for you to here, please feel free to skip ahead about five minutes. Here's Nana from episode 71 with Dulce Sloan and Jim O'Hare. One thing that's a serious thing that we can talk about that you actually had in common with your character was dealing with PTSD, um, which is even more extraordinary to think about because it was kind of an obscure thing when, when Deep Space Nine was, uh, w- w- was filming. It wasn't something that you heard people talking a lot about, but I know you've done a lot of work with that issue and, and you're helping others. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I'll tell you that, uh, yeah, it didn't have a name really then. It wasn't called post-traumatic stress oh. <laughs> disorder. And Victor Frankl says an abnormal reaction to abnormal circumstances Mm -hmm. is normal behavior. Mm -hmm. And I heard a Navy SEAL once say, no, I have post-traumatic stress. And I call it that too. I don't Mm -hmm. say it's a disorder. But I was really lucky. Uh, Yeah, I had an event that happened to me actually when I was working on the show. We had terribly long hours. Uh, And uh, I was driving home at 2 in the morning and I was followed home. And the next thing I knew, I had a nine millimeter gun in my face and Mm. uh, they they uh, shot at me. I ran. They got me and they put me in their car. Wow. It's never good when that happens. Yeah, for sure. Jeez. So uh, it was an incredibly long, horrible night um, with a and it was years, years um, that I got over the rape, but I didn't get over uh, feeling a nine millimeter at my head, cocked. Uh, and I finally got help. I got help here and there, not during the show. I just went right back and did the next episode. Mm. Um, but I finally got help years and years and years, probably like 20 years later. Uh, in New York City, I found a psychologist who dealt with post-traumatic stress with uh, soldiers coming back from Afghanistan. And she did exposure therapy with me. And it doesn't work for everybody, but it worked for me. Enough to give me some tools to go into my own uh, exploration. Mm. What is exposure therapy? Exposure therapy is you, uh, basically what it is, You know, what you do when you have trauma is you try to push it down. You push the memories down you. And so everything gets pushed down. All your feelings, good and bad, everything is shoved down. Mm. And it pops up like whack-a-mole when you don't want it. I know exactly what you're talking about. And so what they do is with a psychologist seeing you through for eight weeks, you tell the story. You tell it over and over, you record it, you listen to yourself tell this story, you write about it, you read what you've written, and you tell it again until you think, oh my God, I can't go through this again. But what it does is it burns out the emotion to it, and it becomes a story. And then it becomes a story I can tell. Mm. And then I have 
control over my story and it doesn't come out in all these different ways and you're being able to talk about it i know helps a lot of other people who've gone through similar significant things as well oh thank you i think that one of the the hardest Mm. things to get over is shame Mm. all these things and it's something that unfortunately is human and happens and if it happened let's talk about it and uh yes i have and now that i um now that I feel uh, that it's my story, I feel like I can maybe share with other people what I have done, what I've found works for trauma. They need to do their own exploration because right. uh, one of my sons grew up to be a Marine and went to Afghanistan. Uh, he's been medically retired, but he told me something wonderful. He said, recovery isn't a silver bullet, it's silver buckshot. Mm. And I found that to be absolutely true, and it's different for everybody what that buckshot is. And you have to find it for yourself. Well, I appreciate you bringing that up, and I appreciate you joining us uh, for this. And this is going to be a very weird shift in gears, but I did find one fact about you that I wanted to confirm because I think it'll be fun for us to talk about, uh, which is I know you're you're a big dog lover, which I know Jim O'Hare you are as well. Is it true that you have or recently had a dog named Helen? The love of my life, Helen, was... A party standard poodle, which means she was a black and white poodle. She was famous when I lived in New York. People, I'd walk her in Central Park, and everyone wanted to take pictures of her. All the all the tourists had to have a shot of her because she wore and she. I I had a, a string of pearls that she'd wear, <laughs> and she'd be like, "Yes, now we can go." Oh, that's hilarious. She was a fancier Helen than I. <laughs> <laughs> We had to bring it back with Helen the dog. And now let's hear from an expert who may well have lived the most interesting life of anyone who's ever appeared on this show or on the planet. <laughs> it's Joe Montaigne. Joe has had such a crazy career that's taken so many twists and turns, and he has stories about all of them. We thought it was a shame that we had to shrink it down for the sake of the podcast. So here's the full uncut Joe Montaigne story from episode 73 with Ben Feldman and Lauren Ash. What's that like to direct yourself and to direct others on a show like Criminal Minds? Well, it was a real privilege and a real joy, actually. I, I wound up doing, uh, I think, nine nine episodes of the show. Um, and, and a few of us wound up doing that. I mean, a show that ran f- total 15 seasons g- gave us that opportunity. Incredible. And, and so there were a few of the other actors like Matthew Gubler, Thomas Gibson, um, A.J. Cook. Aisha, so Adam Rodriguez, a lot of us had opportunities, some more than others, but it was a wonderful experience, especially because we were also very close. And so, yeah, you stay in touch with the cast. Still. I understand you guys have a, have a running text thread. Yeah, we do. I mean, especially the, the, the final eight of us that, mm-hmm. that wound up doing the last three or four years. And uh, yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure they, they both understand, especially being on the our series. Our friend uh, Kristen Vangsness has been on our show. Oh, That's yeah, right. Kirsten is, 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 well, she is, anybody who watches the show, they ask, they often say, is she really like that? And I go, yeah, even more so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, that's just the tip of the iceberg, what you see on the show. But, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it was a great group, and I very, um, very, very, feel very blessed done the, having done the 13 seasons that I yeah. wound up Yeah, what a, what a run. Do you think you'd want to go back and do another TV series after 13 years? on that 
Yeah, I would. I mean, for me, I mean, television, doing a television series actually was a kind of a choice of mine at one point in my career because I, I've been very blessed to have done a lot of theater, done a lot of films. But there came a time in my career, especially after my children were born and, and started growing up, that it was the travel mm. that became kind of difficult in some ways. And, and I wanted to travel more on my own time as opposed to, you know, oh, I got to go here, there and everywhere. Uh, it, it was nice to be able to travel. In fact, something that Lauren will appreciate. I used to work a lot in Toronto. And the, the year we shot uh, Searching for Bobby Fisher, I took Ben Kingsley to his very first baseball game which was the Toronto what? Blue Jays. <laughs> what? And, That's amazing. Oh, and not only that, we became very close friends with uh Dave Boomer Wells. Oh, sure. The, the pitcher Dave Wells. Of course. Who won one of those series on one of those teams. Yeah, because while we were up there the band Chicago was also going to be playing a concert in Toronto. And uh, they contacted me because I've known them since I was a teenager. That's a whole other story. I was in a band in the 60s and I used to play kind of with them. We toured together and all that. Anyway, they called me and says, hey, you know, you want to you come to the concert? We, we know you're, you're up and we heard from your wife. You're up in Toronto. We'll be there. I said, great. So I said, can I bring some of the cast members? They said, great. So I, I asked Ben Kingsley and Joan, uh, Joan Allen if they'd like to go to this Chicago concert. They said, <laughs> what? And I said, what? I said, the Moody Blues are playing with them. And of course, Ben loved that. He went, oh, the Moody Blues. That's my, <laughs> I, I love that band. So, oh, wait, I love how you so, say, of course, as if we all know the huge Moody Blues fan that Sir Ben Kingsley well, well, is. He, well, he was. Yes, he was. But so what was funny is, they, so, so Ben says to me, he goes, he goes so uh, is there a, do we have a vehicle taking us to the, the engagement? I says, yeah, we've got a vehicle. I said, just meet in the hotel lobby. And, of course, we're in a lobby, and Ben's expecting, like, a car to pull up. The Chicago bus pulls up in front of the, in front of the hotel with the name Chicago on the side. And he looks at me. I go, yeah, that's right. We're, we're going with the band. <laughs> so we, we go up onto the bus. And all, now these guys are very Chicago guys, as is myself. Yeah. And uh, so they see me. It's like, hey, Joe. I'm like, hey, Joe. Hey, Joe. And then all of a sudden, oh, by the way, here's my, my two guests, Joan Allen and Ben Kingsley. And so instantly when they see Ben, they get like, oh, like, oh, oh, well, oh, Mr. Kingsley, please. They became like they were from, you know, London all of a sudden. What? So they come on the bus. We we're riding to the to the venue and they're being very polite, offering him like a drink. And, uh, you know, they're, being, they're on their best behavior. But I knew it wasn't going to last. Cause, and they could tell that Ben was, Ben is a really a great guy. And I mean, he, he, they started to pick up on the fact that he was, you know, okay. And finally, Jimmy Pankow, the, uh, the, the trombone player, finally goes... I can't believe it. We got fucking Gandhi on the bus. <laughs> and, and that kind of broke the ice. But the reason I tell this part of the story is when we get to the concert, as it turns out, Dave Wells, pitcher for the Toronto Blue Jays, was very good friends of the bass player for Chicago, Jason Schiff. And so he was there. And because uh, Dave married a, a, a woman from Canada. And so whatever. They, they they knew each other, so we all we sat together like uh, up on the stage actually in the wings to watch the concert. You know Ben was all excited because Moody Blues were playing, and oh we're of course God. excited over to go. So anyway, Dave uh, Dave and I became very what good friends. even is your life? <laughs> yeah, I want to know more. Like, I want to know more about sitting... the band that you were in. Well, I was in a band called the Apocryphals, and uh, it's funny. I mean, they gave Chicago their lifetime. Grammy Award just a couple of weeks ago. PBS had a, it was a special where they gave lifetime wow. Grammys out to, to a few few groups. Earth, Wind, and Fire, 
Chicago. And they asked me to be the presenters. So I, I presented them with their Lifetime Grammy only because I've known wow. them for literally 50 years almost. Wow. Uh, but I tell you, th- back then... But now our band, we were a great good cover band. In other words, we 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 you know if we if we played in certain neighbor if we played like let's say we played in in uh, African American black neighborhoods, we put on the white temptation suits and sing all kinds of soul music. <laughs> if we would, oh my god, if we played you in the suburbs, it. we put on Paisley and we would do all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like you oh know. my god, so we we were whores. I mean, we would just play what they wanted to hear. <laughs> but Chicago at the time they were called they were initially called a band called the Missing Links. That was their name. And then I remember we were playing event, and we were doing well. We made a lot of we were we were a very successful band because cover bands were big in the sixties. People wanted to hear the top to ten, you know, top forty hits. So I remember we were playing. We were like the house band at a place called in Westmont, Illinois, called the Blue Village. And I remember the the the, the, the missing links. They came to see us play. Actually, it was at they came to see play at a place called the Cheetah, which they had one in New York, one in Chicago. They come to see us at this venue, the Cheetah, and they say during our break and they said hey we're changing the band we're adding a trombone we're adding uh, a trumpet we're adding a, uh, an organ player we're gonna have seven guys we're gonna call ourselves chicago transit authority and we're like oh man that's fantastic good and then as soon as they left we went these guys are nuts why would you why would you take a four-person band and make it seven you know split up the money we thought these guys are crazy and then initially, when they started playing, because they would wanted to, they they'd write their own stuff. And literally one night at the Blue Village, where we were this house band, they called us from the the venue, the Blue Village, that and said, "These goddamn guys, these Chicago Transit Authority guys, they they, they refuse to play the top forty stuff. They'll only play their own crap, and the kids hate it. So we're we're, we're throwing them out. You guys, can you fill in the rest of the night?" Wow. And we said, "Oh yeah, sure. Well, we were, you know we we weren't playing that night. We packed up our stuff. We get there, and I'll never forget. We pull up into the parking lot. They're loading." their stuff they're obviously pissed not at us but just the whole thing and we're saying oh man guys sorry you know and we're saying you know, you know. but of course as they left we're thinking why don't they just smarten up what the hell is the matter with that? <laughs> uh, well needless to say yeah uh, you know I, when I finally left playing the, I was in the band for five years then I got cast in the play Hair in 1969 which was my first you professional. did the original Hair well I did the original not not the Broadway here, I did after Broadway, they opened one in Los Angeles, they opened one in Chicago. So okay. I did the one in Chicago. Wow. And so but, did you have to get naked and run through the audience? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That's <gasps> a whole other story. That's how I got my wife, though, because she was in the play, too. So, so it worked out. <laughs> Is that where you met her? Well, we, we, we actually knew each other before, but that's when we first got together. So her and I have been together since 1969. So, oh, that's uh, awesome. So that, that worked out. Uh, and I and I and I I credit the, the nude scene to to why she, she's a trapper, <laughs> but that's that's my story. She knew what she was. But anyway, into. yeah. But my but but then I was going to say that when I got cast in the play, that's when I gave up the music business. But because uh, I had to, all of a sudden you're in a show, you're doing eight shows a week, you, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and I've been studying to be an actor, and it was like, okay, I got the job, I'm going to do it. But then all of a sudden, that just at that same time is when the, the Chicago's first album came out, Chicago Transit Authority, and it was like. Oh, I see. <laughs> that's, that, that's what they had in mind, yeah. and so it was like from that point on, I knew that. Yeah. You me, know, meanwhile, they, they made, were, Meanwhile, they were probably thinking, "Oh, this Montaigne, he's going to try acting." Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, it's just all out. worked out. It all, yeah, it all, it all worked, worked out. out they, they made the right choice. I think I made the right choice, and we're still mm-hmm. we're very, very close friends. I should to say this so. Wow. Anyway. Awesome. Well, let me ask you about Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Uh, how did you first get involved in that play? Well. 
I, you know, I, I've known Mamet since about 19, early 70s, maybe 1972 mm-hmm. in Chicago. I was studying to be in, well, this was past that. I was in a theater company called the Organic Theater in Chicago at this point. It was after Hair. You know, unlike Ben, actually, I started doing musicals. This is what I started, and I thought that was going to be my thing. I did Hair for like a year and a half, did the national tour with people like Meatloaf <laughs> in, the, in the national tour. He was in the national tour of Hair with me. Uh, what? Yeah, yeah. But then after Hair, I did Godspell mm-hmm. for a year. So I always Love thought Godspell. that's going to be my ticket. Yeah, but you, it, it means... Your Broadway debut was actually in Working. Working. Studs yeah. Terkel's play Working. I have two songs on the album that James Taylor wrote. So, I mean, <gasps> I thought that was going to be my thing. Okay, I'm going to be like a, a you know, Jim Dale kind of guy. Uh-huh. I'll do Broadway musicals. Yeah. But in the meantime, I, during the, like a break in the action in Chicago, I was doing uh, this theater company, the Organic Theater, and we were doing straight plays, original, most part original stuff that we were doing. And Dave Mamet was in town uh, trying to peddle his stuff as a, as a playwright. And I remember this is how we met. We were at the, I, I was, had been a student at the Goodman School of Drama, which is now the theater school at DePaul University. So I was going to the Goodman. This was probably 1972, maybe. And I'm going there to visit probably a, a, one of the teachers. And Mamet, who I didn't know who he was, was coming up the stairs because the, the school was located in, in actually in the basement of the Art Institute. He was coming up the stairs, and he was there trying to peddle one of his plays, trying to get them to, he was this unknown playwright, Cam, I've got these plays, Why, you know, would you do them? And he sees me coming down the stairs, and he stops me, he goes, hey, I, and he had seen me in this production I had done at the Organic Theater, of this whatever play that was, and he says, hey, I really like you in this play, I'd love you to maybe someday we'll work together, you can, you know, you can do my stuff, and I'm saying, yeah, great, you know, whoever you are, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, that'd be terrific. Well, as it turned out, a little short time passed, and he, he came to our theater company, and, and our, our, our producing director, Stuart Gordon, uh, who was a you know, wonderful, uh, very talented man, and he picked up on Dave's talent in his writing, and he said, yeah, this guy's really, let's do some of his stuff. And so Mamet came to us with the original script of American Buffalo, mm-hmm. which is, the, by the way, the movie that Dustin Hoffman did, that Ben yeah, was thinking I've, of. In but when he came to us with that script, all he wanted to do was hear it. He had never heard it. He had written it, but he hadn't heard it. So he came to our theater company, because that's the only kind of theater company he kind of at least knew at that point, maybe. And so I remember we did the original reading for him so he can hear it. So I, I read Teach. This actor, Jack Wallace, read uh, like the characters mixed up, Donnie, where the guy runs the, the fleet, the, the, the uh, pawn shop, and then the, another, one of the other actors, Brian Hickey, read The Kid. So we all read it for him, just so he can hear it. And I remember at the end of it, Mammoth saying, so what would you think? You know, I remember like, you know, I probably said stuff like, yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, I don't know. I don't, the ending could probably use a little work or something. You know, who knows? <laughs> I don't think you're going to win the Pulitzer or anything. No, no, no. So as it turned out, that led to many other things like that. In other words, David would call me and say, would you, like, I'm doing the reading of my stuff. He still wasn't really well known, but he, you know, starting to get some play. He said, would you, we're doing reading of my stuff at the Chicago Public Library. Would you read some of my stuff? Like I said, of course, you know, and I, because I felt that I, the kind of characters he was writing for was kind of the way I grew up. I grew up in the west side of Chicago, and, and he was writing about characters in a world that I kind of felt very familiar with and so which was unique for me as an actor because so much much of the material you get is either written by people from either new york or england or this or that and and there wasn't a lot necessarily a ton of stuff coming out of chicago 
But here was a guy that, you know, he spoke the, the words that I speak, kind of. <laughs> I wound up doing that, and then ultimately, I did the world premiere of A Life in the Theater in Chicago with Mike Nussbaum, one, another one of the actors that Dave often used. Mm-hmm. But this was all at a small level. This yeah. was all, none of this was a big deal. Was it? Were you part of that group that like Sinise, Bill Macy, like that whole? Chicago that was the group, group that. Well, that that. Well, Sinise was somebody else. Yeah, Sinise Steppenwolf. was with Steppenwolf. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what what David did oh, is right. he started his own company called the St. Nicholas Theater Company, and that was with uh, uh, William H Macy, Bill, mm-hmm. Bill, Bill Bill Macy, Stephen Schachter, uh, a few other actors in that particular. Clark Gregg, uh, ultimately Clark Gregg. Uh, some of the people from. Uh, the Atlantic Theater Company. He co-started the Atlantic Theater Company in New York. But I was with a different group. I was with the Organic Theater. I was like Dennis Franz, Meshach Taylor, or John Hurd. These were people. We were a little bit older, uh, that group. But it really wasn't... I Like I said, I'd done these various things for Dave, all in Chicago. And then it was 1983. I get this phone call. I'm living here in Los Angeles doing little bit parts on sitcoms and doing whatever. Doing theater, too. We were, we were doing... A, uh, play Bleacher Bums that I conceived years ago in Chicago that uh, did well in New York and we did it out here in L.A. Um, and he called. He says, hey, I've got this new play. Uh, thinking we're going to take it to Chicago and see how it goes. And if it goes, we'll go to New York. You, you in? I said, well, yeah, send me the play. Let me check it out. Now, I knew nothing about real estate. I my, my parents never owned a house. So I grew up in apartments my entire life. So he sends me this play I read the play and it's all about leads and this and I don't know what the hell a lead is. I, I, it was like reading hieroglyphics to me, but I could tell that it was like it was a great character. So Ricky Roma, yeah, this guy seems man, I could relate to the guy, but I don't know what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> so I literally, I remember Mamet called me the next day. Goes, so Joe, uh, uh, we call, he almost calls me Montaigne. Yo, Montaigne. He goes, uh, so did you read the play? What do you think? I said, uh, and I lied to him. I said, you know, Dave, I didn't get to it. I couldn't get to it. Something came up. I'll, I'll read it today. Because I realized i got to find out what the hell a lead is and all this stuff. <laughs> so I made some phone calls to like guys I knew that like had lived in homes that understood real estate. <laughs> but I said, oh, a lead, yeah, this is when you did that, that, that. And I was like, oh, okay. So then when I read it again, it's like, okay, at least I know what the hell he's talking about, what he's doing. So then I called Dave back. And I really, my wife and I, we, you know, we were in L.A., like I said, we lived in a little apartment in, in Studio City. It was great and all, but I, was, I, I wasn't committed to do anything. So it was like, sure, Dave, let's go. You know, this sounds like fun, you know. And uh, that was it. And the next thing I know, I'm in the Chicago and then New York. And then that, so no audition, just he asked me? No, 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 no audition. Ultimately, what, I'll tell you this, though, and this is a testament to what kind of guy David Mamet is. The producers, as you can imagine, at that time would have loved because now you got to understand American Buffalo had already run on Broadway at that time with Robert Duvall, and it was somewhat of a hit. So now Mamet had some juice in New York. Mm. That's why they were going to do this play. But the producers really wanted an all-star cast. Mm. So their first choice for the role actually was Pacino, and but Al, you know, he was busy this, that, and the other. It's a play that had never been done, and for whatever reasons, he he, he didn't he, he decided not to do it. So then they went to De Niro, uh, and then De Niro was offered the part on Broadway. Da, 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 da. He decided not to do it. Well, to Dave's credit, he went to the producers and said, "Look, I'm not going to go th- down the list of every like famous Italian actor in the world." <laughs> he says, and, and what he convinced them was, he says, "Let's not make it a star vehicle play. Let's just do it with let's just do it with you know the actors that I think that maybe might be right for the parts and." So there's going to be no names wow. about the title. Nobody's names on the marquee. We're mm-hmm. just going to be like nobody. An ensemble, yeah. And, and it was an ensemble, and that's what happened. And so, because really the next major straight play that opened on Broadway after us 
was um, Hurley Burley, which everybody mm-hmm. was like a kind of a name actor. So, so I, I got to say that was really uh, that 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 obviously doing Glengarry changed my life because I went from you know guy doing like you know little bits here and there and you know wondering where the next job's coming from. Mm-hmm. Then no, we're in New York. He, I, I won the Tony Award. He won the, the play wins the Pulitzer Prize. Wow. Uh, I'm able to do the play for a year on Broadway, tour six months with Peter Falk around the, the country. Mm. Uh, so 1984, 1984, been Betty, Betty, good to me. Joe, have you? You did a bunch. I mean, you did a ton after that, right? Well, then yeah. I did Speed the Plow on Broadway in 1988 with Madonna and Ron Silver. Mm-hmm. It was the three the three character play of which of must Speed have been crazy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you, yeah. You do it with Madonna. I mean, it's <laughs> like. Uh, uh, I, I remember I, I was able to get her the bodyguard that they needed because she, like, Madonna was great. She was like she 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 was like a regular girl. I mean, to this day, I know her pretty well. I, um, so I wound up doing a movie with her as well, Body of Evidence, some years after that. But um, she would like be she throwing up a bush and say, "Come on, y'all, let's go to lunch." You know, between the <laughs> matinee on Wednesday and the night show and stuff like that. So she was at. <laughs> but I remember before opening night or first preview, even she, she was very. Sweet about it. She said to the stage manager and the director, she says, so, so are you, are you going to be taking care of like security? And they're like, oh, so this is Broadway. This is not rock and roll, honey. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, don't worry about it. This is, this is Broadway. And she's like, okay. And then of course, <laughs> of course, at the first preview, <laughs> as the show ended outside, there must have been like a hundred thousand peep kids wearing mm. the Madonna shirts and hats and balloons and yeah. and you know they had the, the police had to come and get her into her car and then they realized, oh yeah maybe we do have to do something. <laughs> so luckily, I, and actually I knew I knew Al, I knew Al, well Al and I had known each other anyway. So I I, I, um, I I his bodyguard was out of work at the time. And so I was able to get his bodyguard, Louis, to be Madonna's kind of security. What? Uh, Joe, have you written a memoir? Yeah, seriously. No, no. Like, too many people are going to have to die before I do that. <laughs> but that's okay. But I, I will tell you, one of the performances, a guy just ran, you know, it, it was, it was, it was, I think it was in the Daily News or the Post, probably the Post, sounds like more something they'd write. One of the performances, they wrote in the Post the next day, Joe Montaigne saves Madonna's life. Because during one of the performances, some guy comes running up out of the audience, oh. jumps up <gasps> on the stage. And I got to understand, it's a three-character play. It's myself, Madonna, and, and Ron. So I'm standing doing a scene where I'm talking to Madonna. And all of a sudden, I look at her face. And she's got this look on her face of like kind of like shock. And my back is to the kind of the audience at this point, And I'm thinking... I'm looking at her thinking, that's an odd reaction. She's never kind of reacted <laughs> to, to that line with that look before. And then I realized there's this young man coming past me to get to her no i don't think he's there to do any bodily harm i think he was there to, to opposite maybe to you know embrace her or whatever yeah but, but it's funny the things that goes through your head because all i could think of is hey man it took my whole life to get on broadway this is a three character <laughs> play and you ain't in it and i grabbed him by the shirt and just dragged him and pushed him into the wings and then Whoa! and then and then looked at her and we you know we she stumbled for a minute and yeah. then we went on with the play. I think the audience thought Joe, maybe you're it was part a hero. Of the play. But Joe, anyway. You uh, have so many things on your shelves behind you. How do you not have that newspaper part <laughs> of oh, that says, yeah. No, 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 no. no okay. Joe, you have to write the memoir. This is just literally like. There's a million stories cr- in the Naked City. This is yeah, pretty few of them.
we've got just a couple more gems to share with you, and these are from our newest episodes from the Max Fun Drive. Now, if you prefer to go into our shows completely spoiler-free and you're listening to this before Friday, May 7th, we recommend pausing here and coming back after you've heard the episode that drops on that date. Yes, hit that pause button now if you don't want to be spoiled. Okay, I think they're gone. Good, we can talk about them. I I love them. They're great. All right. uh, Let's get started with an excerpt from episode 82 with guests Dave Shumka and Laura House from Maximum Fun Shows with our expert Tyler Stewart, the drummer and vocalist from the band Bare Naked Ladies. Here he is talking about what it was like to join the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. I bet it was an honor, eh? Uh, You guys were inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame by another Canadian rocker. We're talking about Canadian popular music here. Uh, Tell us about uh, who inducted you and and what that meant to you. Well, Geddy Lee from Rush inducted us into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. And that, well, it doesn't get much better than that. That was incredible. And he said such nice things. And, you know, he said them in a voice that wasn't incredibly sky high, which was a surprise to us. These guys Um, are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hall of Fame. Yeah, he, uh, you do a much better Getty Lee than I do. Not surprisingly, well, no, that was pretty good. <laughs> Thank I, you. I, you know what? Honestly, it was great, and it was a real honor. That was a great night for mm-hmm. us. You know, being in front of your peers like that and getting to see everybody—that's the best thing about award shows—is mm. you actually get to see all of your colleagues because, you know, the rest of the year you're out doing your own thing, and you're. You know, we're on tour. You never see each other. Yeah. Um, so we all, all under one roof. And uh, yeah, it was a very special night. So all our, all our families were there and it was so great. And uh, I love that you ended that speech by uh, singing the names of, of people you wanted to thank. And it ended with thanking Canada, which I thought is one of the most Canadian things I can imagine. Uh, <laughs> our topic today is Canadian music. And I'm wondering, is there a special kinship that you feel uh, with other Canadian musical artists or what Canada specifically has done for you all as a band? Well, ironically, we've done better in the United States than we have done in Canada. So it's a very interesting thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think we're all very proud of Canada. Mm -hmm. We're proud Canadians. We all still live here. Mm. And we consider ourselves definitely a part of the Canadian music community. That uh, independent cassette I was talking about earlier on, Mm -hmm. uh, faithfully known as a yellow tape, I bet you Dave has a copy. I don't. I don't have one of those. Oh well, I'll send you one. Oh, oh, sure, yeah, nice, yeah, yeah. Oh. Just contact the Smithsonian, and they might lend you a uh, cassette player. The Canadian Smithsonian, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, that that cassette was an independent cassette, which sold you know eighty thousand yeah. copies, and kind of started a real independent wave in Canada. We started, you know, independent bands were selling more than label artists there for a bit you know Mm. in the early 90s uh, at certain record stores in toronto we were out selling like madonna and u2 and like it was crazy it was nuts but and this is you know a song with five songs on each side had your auto reverse tape deck (laughs) same five songs just kept going forever um so we i feel like we're kind of fathers or founders of the canadian indie music scene so that made us friends with a whole slew of bands and artists across the country and uh that's that relationship continues outstanding all right we have one last story to share today and like we said this one's also a spoiler so if for some reason you don't mind the first spoiler but did come back for the second one 
Hmm. Uh, go ahead, press pause now, and come back after this episode drops on Friday, May 14th. But if you are staying, you'll get to hear our guests on this episode, Justin McElroy and Dr. Sidney McElroy, and surprise expert Maxwell Caulfield, famous for his role as Michael Carrington in Grease 2. And famous for being handsome, apparently, Helen. You were, I don't think I've ever seen you as more hubba hubba than on that episode. Mm -hmm. What a snack. Well, uh, he is known as a major presence in New York theater in addition to being a snack. Uh, That presence sometimes means that you're going to see more of him than you bargained for. Check it out. You actually got to be on stage for the duration, pretty much of an entire play, with Jessica Tandy. And who does not have that recurring dream of being naked on stage with Jessica Tandy? <laughs> what was it like what, in real what life? A fact. What, a, what a privilege to appear with her, I can assure you. What a, an amazing deal that was. Did she comment on your physique? Be honest. She, okay, one quick story. When we yes. were doing the dress rehearsal, I'd obviously resisted... Uh, not taking my uh, keep my clothes on to the last possible moment and uh, for the dress rehearsal uh, you know you on a technical level the lights go down at the end of the first act and then of course the actors disappear right Mm -hmm. or the curtain comes down in this instance it was a stage on the three quarters the audience were extremely close let me tell you I I started to recognize patrons on the front row as the (laughs) run progressed but um, the, the reality of it is, is that the stage manager just immediately just banged the lights up, you know. Okay, everyone, five minutes, get some coffee. We'll be back in five and we'll do the second act. And I just sort of got up because I was obviously just trying to get used to the concept of being out there with nothing on. And Jessica Tandy, who was in a deck chair at the time because it's set on a Greek beach, turned away and with her hand to her forehead, said, I don't want to shatter the illusion. <laughs> I don't know what you'd imagine, but uh, <laughs> I don't know how to take it. But I scurried off. Yeah, whatever motivates someone's performance, yeah, whatever works. I have to say, looking at you now, you are still handsome as ever, and I would not have minded being in the front row of any either one of those shows. Yeah, thank you. You also did a lot of television work. A lot of people might recognize you in the U.S. from being on the nighttime soaps Dynasty and the Colbys, and you actually had a reunion relatively recently with a lot of that cast. Yes, we did. We did it actually uh, in uh, on, for, for a, a medical issue. The dreaded long version of long COVID. Uh, mm-hmm. Emma Sams, who played Fallon Carrington in the show, who I was uh, married to at the same time, she was still married to my half brother, but she had a case of amnesia, so she didn't realize. <laughs> we, know, we all know. We all know. Marital stories, and but Emma came down with it early. In, oh gosh. In, yeah, back in uh, literally last March, and is still feeling the effects. Uh, mm-hmm. So she uh, wants to raise money for for, for some research uh, to, being conducted by an outfit in uh, uh, Bristol, in the west of England, I- into this malaise. And um, we raised uh, well over thirty thousand bucks, and everybody piled in. I mean, uh, Linda Evans and uh, Joan Collins set a video looking impossibly wonderful. Uh, but uh, the rest of us were all there, you know, dutifully in front of our Zoom cameras, John yeah. James and Mike, Michael Nader and uh, both the uh, guys who played Stephen and all the beautiful women who appeared in the show. Mm. Um, and it was a treat to see. And, and, you know, that's one of the things as an actor you're slightly obliged to do, particularly if you come on early in your career and it's somewhat based on your appearance, um, you know what I mean? You, you, you know, because Hollywood exploits 
you know, people at their, their prettiest. And, um, and so, uh, you, I wish I could relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, and let me tell you, you, you know, you find out about it as the yeah. years go by, you go, Oh, right. Okay. Yes. I see. Now I'm up for the dad role and all, you know, <laughs> oh. progression of your career. Yeah. But, um, the point being that, um, uh, that uh, we were all, you know, as I say, at our, at our cutest in Greece too. And we were photographed, I might add, uh, by, by real old school Hollywood photographers mm. who had apprenticed with, with the masters of their day in the golden era. So wow. we were, our, our looks were even enhanced to, to a degree <laughs> by tricks of the trade. And in the case of Michelle Pfeiffer, I mean, she's just so iridescently beautiful. Um, it was not hard to play falling hook line and falling hook line. I can tell you that. Once again, we just want to thank you so much for supporting us in the Max Fun Drive. We love our members. You really help make the show possible. Well, while you're here for our bonus content, check out our other bonus content. That's right. Every year for the Max Fun Drive, we release a bonus episode here in this very podcast feed that you're in now. We did an entire episode with a live audience that had Ross and Carrie from Oh No, Ross and Carrie. We also did an episode where we talked to some of our previous guests about some of the interactions that they had with experts after the show. It's a lot of fun. Anyhow, thanks so much for listening to this episode and to every episode of Go Fact Yourself. Today's episode was edited and produced by Julian Burrell. Go Fact Yourself is a panel quiz program devised and produced by Jim Newman and J. Keith Van Stratton and comes to you via transcription. Questions on Go Fact Yourself were compiled by the Trivia Industrial Complex. It is produced in collaboration with Maximum Fun. Our theme song and incidental music were written and performed by Jonathan Green. Maximum Fun's senior producer is Laura Swisher. I've been Helen Hong. Let's go make more bonus content for next year. Boko! Boko! MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.